Berg's violin concerto is music full of allusion and illusion. The circumstances of its composition were overtaken by tragic personal events, the death of a young girl who was a close friend of Berg's. The concerto became her epitaph. He dedicated it to the memory of an angel, but also that of Berg himself. He was already sick when he began it. He was determined to finish it before he died, and the fact that he never lived to hear it is a touching gloss on what is already a profoundly moving story. Berg's concerto is a serial work. It's constructed around a particular sequence of the twelve notes of the chromatic scale, according to strict rules. Serialism is often regarded as a dry, abstract, technical way of writing music. Some people think it can't work because there's no space within it for the creative inspiration and emotional depth of the composer. But in his violin concerto, Berg integrates serial composition with other compositional techniques and musical allusions. The techniques sound boring and mathematical, but the music doesn't sound like that. There are perhaps only two ways of listening to Berg's swan song. One is to let it flow over you like a kind of dream. I did that once at a prom, and I can still recall the effect. It was otherworldly. The other, maybe, is to listen with intense concentration, marking the general flow of events as well as the minute details which contribute to the wondrous sense of organic inevitability. The music seems to occupy a territory halfway between the known and the unknown, between the dream and the reality, and this twilight world is epitomised by the musical language. At times it seems familiar, wisps of melody harmonised in a traditional way. At other times it seems to subvert the familiar. Melodies are suggested which never quite materialise. The harmony, having started out traditionally, suddenly ceases to have the sort of function we're used to. Rather as though an area of abstraction were to appear in the middle of a totally figurative painting, it's a dangerous analogy, I know, but I think it works. Take, for instance, that abnormally tonal chord sequence just after the beginning. It's a fascinating passage of fleeting beauty. The harmonic language easy to apprehend, and in fact classically correct, but the harmonies, natural as they sound, haven't been chosen for their harmonic aptness. In fact, that's just a blind. But because they're made up of the twelve individual notes, the tone row, which Berg has devised as the musical source of the whole concerto. In the next two bars, the violin soloist spells them out. In this rising phrase, no note is repeated.
Right up to that last drooping sigh, all twelve notes of the chromatic scale had been used. It's an important principle of twelve-tone composition that no note should be played again until all the others in the series have been heard. That's so that all the notes remain equal and none is more important than another. Even though the tone row has been put together very carefully, it sounds natural. That's mainly because Berg has built it around the physical nature of the violin itself. The row, that rising phrase there, moves up in a series of thirds, and it conceals the four open strings of the violin, G, D, A and E. The soloist, in fact, has already spelt them out in the second bar of the concerto, taking up an idea announced by the harp and clarinet in the bar before. It's rather as though the music were emerging from the orchestra, improvising on the musical concept of the violin. Those open strings are a fifth apart, so it's possible to fill in the interval between each string with a note in the middle. So a B-flat comes between the low G and the D of the next string above. G, B-flat and D. That's the triad of the chord of G minor, a very nice violinistic key. Max Brook certainly thought so. Similarly, between the second and third strings, D and A, you could put an F-sharp. And you get the triad of D major, another violinistic key canonised in their concertos by Beethoven, Brahms and Tchaikovsky. What about the next two, A and E? The triad of A minor, chosen by Dvorak for his violin concerto. It's almost as though Berg were buying into the whole tradition of writing violin concertos and embedding it in the basic material of his own work. And he continues the logic of what he set up, building another triad on the E string, E, G-sharp and B. When he gets to that B, Berg's encompassed nine of the chromatic notes available to him. And it seems the obvious thing to do to incorporate the 10th, 11th and 12th notes of the octave as a scalic tailpiece. Starting on the B, they form what's called a whole tone scale. This tailpiece, created from the leftover notes, thrown out almost as an afterthought, becomes a highly significant motif in the whole concerto, as we'll hear. Anyway, that's how Berg arrived at his basic row, and chanced on his musical material. It seems tailor-made for the violin and for the elegiac nature of the music he needed to write. And it also seems to hold strictly to the tenets of serial composition, adopted as a new musical language by Berg, his colleague Anton Webern, and their teacher Arnold Schoenberg. But there's something a little strange here. Berg, we think, is writing a modern, abstract piece of music. There's no place for history or tradition, and certainly no place for extra-musical ideas or old-fashioned tonality. And yet, we've hardly started looking at this concerto, and we've already heard a passage which sounds exactly like old-fashioned tonality. 
and we know that there's a very powerful extra musical idea behind the work. It seems as though Berg might be ready to try and integrate both old and new. He's writing a violin concerto, after all, a very traditional form, and there are those fifths, the absolutely fundamental interval of traditional tonality, and the triads spelling out the keys of some of the great violin concertos of the past. But at the heart of it all is the twelve-tone row and the strict modern musical techniques which accompany it. I could imagine Berg's excitement when he contrived that phrase. It was important for him to make the tone row an instrument of the heart as well as of the mind, and this one must have seemed redolent with possibility. Maybe it could be the means by which Berg could prove the structural and expressive potential of the new serial ethic, and successfully combine it with that of traditional harmony. For that to be the case. It had to exist not just as a linear statement. It had to be the matter from which harmony could emerge. This is how these notes give rise to that haunting passage of totally traditional harmony. The bass G supports a B flat and D above it. The top two notes are repeated. Then, while they are hanging on, the bass moves up to an F sharp, the fourth note of the series. Above it, the top D is repeated again, but the B flat below it moves down to an A, note number five. Then, because the harmony at this point is more important to him than the strict order of the row. Berg plays the seventh note next, the E, in the bass, and only then moves the D that's been ringing at the top down to note six, C. Now he's arrived at the evocative A minor harmony. The eighth note is a G sharp, and the bass moves to that, while the chord at the top shifts to add note nine, B, to the E that's already been sounded. So already, Berg, champion of the strict rules of serialism as a means to replace traditional harmony, twists those very rules to provide traditional harmony. What some people would regard as a dry technique has been transformed into a rich, romantic texture. There's something almost unbearably nostalgic about that music, especially for those who wanted and still want to return to the comfortable emotionalism of the Romantic era. But it also has a valedictory feel, which colours the rest of the work. A funeral procession may be. The angel Berg dedicated the music to was Manon Gropius, the daughter of Alma Mahler and the famous architect Walter Gropius. Manon was a talented and beautiful actress, but was struck down by polio when she was only eighteen. Berg intended the first part of his concerto to be her character portrait. The shadow of Mahler falls across the music, since Berg inherited so much from him, but also because Mahler himself spent his life coping with the idea of death, and particularly the death of children. 
just another line of thought adding to this concerto's rich resonance, and underlining Berg's connection with his musical heritage. After that halting succession of melting harmonies, the horn introduces another motif, a rocking idea built on the interval of a seventh. It's echoed by the saxophone a couple of bars later. And as you heard, the saxophone has no compunction about repeating the notes. Once again, Berg is happy to abandon the serial method when he needs to. Often, while one part proceeds strictly according to the row, other parts move completely freely, without reference either to a traditional system of key or to the preconceived row. The row and its rules are a foundation for a new kind of musical freedom. Here are the first 27 bars again, the magical shifting soundscape we heard at the beginning of the programme. Already juxtapositions leap out at us of old and new and of abstraction and intense romantic nostalgia. I've tried to show how Berg created his basic material, unfolding it for us as though he were also demonstrating its origin. It's an interesting phenomenon. On the one hand, the instinctive musician, delighting in the natural growth of music from the instruments which play it, in this case the violin. On the other, the highly organised thinker and craftsman who is making something which is more than the sum of its parts, something expressive because of its organisation and conscious processes. Now the music moves on. That's all we hear at this point of the first theme. 
In fact, a kind of impassioned brevity is inherent in the twelve-note method. Once the row has been exposed, it has to be repeated in some form or other, and new ideas must be generated from it. So there's a kind of restlessness built in. Moreover, since all the notes have the same importance, unlike in the tonal music of previous centuries, every note claims our attention equally. There are no insignificant passing notes. And this is partly what gives serial music its earnest driving quality, its insistent passion. So, how can a composer generate new ideas from his twelve notes? Well, that last plunging fall on the violin includes a complete statement of the row, but played upside down. It's an accepted serial technique called inversion. Strictly speaking, all serial composers have at their disposal four ways of developing their material. They can use the notes of the row in their original form. Or backwards, or upside down, as we just heard, or upside down and backwards. By using these techniques, Berg generates a whole series of thematic motifs. For example, as I mentioned, this apparently new idea arises from the upside-down version of the row. The rising whole tones of the original version fall instead. Once that line takes wing, serial techniques can extend it more or less forever. Berg takes the rhythm of that motif and applies it to the backwards form of the row. The rising whole tones from the end of the original version now appear at the beginning. Then he allows the rhythm to transform itself and suggest another new idea. And I'm sure you spotted that that was the upside-down version of the row again. Actually, spotting the versions as they go past isn't the point of this sort of music at all. I'm spending a little time highlighting them to show how Berg uses serial techniques to build the music. But I hope I'm also demonstrating that they aren't what you actually hear. The tantalising thing about twelve-note composition. Is that it originates as a supremely conscious process, just like Bach writing a fugue, and becomes, in the hands of a master, absolutely free of the rules which govern its making.
We've moved seamlessly into the second movement, an allegretto akin to a classical scherzo. It's full of yet more new themes, all derived from the same basic row. Themes like this playful Lendler idea from the clarinets, a lilting dance, imitated by the solo violin. A second theme has the characteristic lilt of a Viennese waltz. Berg even marks it Wienerisch in the score. After the Wienerisch tune, the soloist introduces a third, more skittish idea. This time, the marking in the score is Rustico. Berg wrote the concerto at his holiday home on Austria's Wörthersee, and apart from this rustic theme, the music often reflects an autumnal rural piece. This is another take on the concerto's melancholic tone. The unspoilt landscape in the heart of Europe was itself doomed, like Berg and like Manon. Berg was obviously sensible of the threat, and I think this concerto can also be felt as an elegy for the passing of an older way of life. It's the last time a composer could genuinely write a pastoral music. There's another reference to Berg's holiday home later in the movement, even more surprising than that rustic theme. This time, he quotes in full a folk song from the area. Berg asks that the melody should gradually emerge from the texture. It's like a distant memory, achingly nostalgic.
For the first time, there's no attempt to derive that melody from the tone row. But because Berg has built the row up using all those thirds, the triadic folk tune seems to be a distant relative. What's it doing here, painted in so daringly? The effect verges on the sentimental, but there's been no hint of sentimentality anywhere else in the music. The words of the song are all about a young lady called Mitzi and her delightful lovemaking. Perhaps Berg didn't expect his audience to know that, but knowing his penchant for Schumann-esque ciphers and codes, it just possibly could refer to his first amatory experience. That was with a young Corinthian servant girl whose name was Mitzi. Isn't it all a bit shocking in the context of this elegy for an angel? Not a bit. As well as thinking of Manon and the joys that her early death snatched from her, Berg is thinking back to his own youth, and he knew that such things were no longer for him either. It's remarkable that these references can find a place in what we thought would be an abstract serial work. If they weren't so carefully woven into the texture, they might even sound kitsch. Yet again, Berg is integrating the serial ethic with other musical ideas, ideas which have traditions and impressions attached to them. It's as if he were using serialism as a backdrop against which to set snatches of another, more familiar world. I think it's one of the keys to the success of this piece. The familiar, woven into unfamiliar surroundings, takes on new meaning, and at the same time heightens the abstraction and the modernism. All these references and memories certainly stoke up the emotional heat. That's the end of the first half of Berg's Violin Concerto. As he said, a portrait of its dedicatee, his young friend Manon Gropius, who died of polio at the age of 18. Like Part 1, Part 2 is also in two linked movements, and these movements mirror the first two. So, while the first pair built up from a meditative opening to that hectic allegretto, the second half moves back towards meditation. It starts with a scream of agony, a rising series of intervals which telescopes the notes of the row into a highly dissonant chord. The soloist desperately hangs on to an anguished discord before launching out on a cadenza which seems to demand his very lifeblood. The orchestra underpins the struggles of the soloist's cadenza with a motif derived from the last four notes of the row, the whole tone scale. It's a theme which becomes increasingly important as the concerto runs its course.
The music continues to build. Eventually, a life and death struggle ensues. Marla would have approved. As the music rises to a shattering climax and then gradually falls back, it's quite clearly supposed to represent Manon Gropius's last moments. And here, Berg pulls off his master stroke. The whole tone scale motif, which began to emerge in the middle of the texture there, gradually grows in prominence until taken up by the soloist, it reveals its inspirational source. we become aware of a new melody, a chorale, and it's to this point that the whole concerto seems to have been leading. The original tone row ended with a whole tone scale. Now it's revealed as the first four notes of the chorale. That whole tone scale has found its true significance. And when the clarinets take up the melody, Something about the harmonization makes us pay close attention.
Alban Berg is identifying his sources for us. I've held out against mentioning it, just to maintain the surprise, although I guess it's a well-known fact nowadays. The woodwind are voicing Bach's original harmonization of his own melody from Cantata No. 60, the chorale Es ist genug. It is enough, so take, Lord, my spirit. Bach's most daring and radical harmonization of any of his chorales. And so begins the epilogue, the final devastating adagio, which is a set of variations on Bach's chorale. The first variation is led by the cellos with the harp in imitation. The second violins add a sobbing figure, and the whole is welded together with sustained horn harmonies.
the second variation is led by a solo horn. This time, in another strange marriage of old and new, Berg applies his serial techniques to Bach's melody and turns the chorale upside down. As this variation dissolves, the cellos rise up out of the depths and appear to lead the opening notes of the chorale into a different world. Taking the cue, the soloist recalls the world of rural Corinthia and that little folk song about Mitzi and her lovemaking. In this last movement, Berg brings to bear a whole raft of references which seem to pull the various aspects of his life together. The places and people he loved, along with the music of the past, and the serialism which he believed was its present and future. The somewhat shocking juxtaposition of a Bach chorale and a serial work is the culmination of the integration of old and new that we've seen throughout this concerto. Some people think it's an unhappy union, that the chorale feels out of place and forced. But I hope I've shown that it emerges organically from the row itself, the heart of the piece, in the same way as the other themes have before it. Others, again, think that the inclusion of the Bach is an admission of failure on Berg's part, an acceptance that serialism can't express the profound emotion he needs to find in this last movement. But the whole work has been full of non-serial elements woven into the twelve-tone texture, and their significance to us is sharpened by the context in which they appear. This concerto seeks to contain all life, from earthy folk songs with youthfully erotic memories to sacred chorales brought together in a musical texture that arises from the natural propensities of the violin. It's a breathtaking concept, which we can appreciate at the surface level or at a deeper technical level as masterfully carried out by the desperately sick composer. Or we can experience it at its most profound and searching, as a complete expression of Berg's life view on the brink of eternity, inspired by the tragic death of a young girl whom he loved. <laughs> 